Amen. So a couple weeks ago, I was walking through my living room and my kids were watching the live action remake of Aladdin, which I haven't seen. But admittedly, my first thought was Will Smith looks a lot more jacked as a bald blue guy than Tobias Funke did. It's close. It's a tomato, tomato situation. But anyways, Aladdin is based on a thought provoking concept, a genie coming along and granting you your wishes. And it made me wonder if a genie showed up and said, I had one wish. What's the one thing I'd wish for? Like, what about you? If you could have anything, what would you ask for? If everything was on the table, what is the one thing you'd wish for? Would it be money or success or fame or power, a team from Chicago actually winning anytime ever? Like, what would it be? It's an interesting thing to think about. But as much as it feels like a completely ethereal hypothetical for us because blue genies don't actually exist. One guy in the history of the world actually got that offer. First Kings 3 tells us that right after Solomon became king of Israel, God showed up to him in a dream and said, hey, what do you want? I'll give it to you. Pick out any one thing that you desire and I will make it happen. And we'd expect Solomon to ask for wealth or military strength or the expansion of his kingdom because that's what kings do. But Solomon thought about it and said, I want wisdom. God, being a leader is really difficult, and if I can only have one thing, would you grant me all the wisdom I need to be the leader you created me to be? And God responded, great answer. In fact, that's such an impressive response. I'm going to throw in all the other stuff too. You're going to get blessing and power and fame and glory, because as it turns out, a little bit of wisdom goes a long way in every single area of your life. So quick flashback to your answer. What was it you thought of just a minute ago when I asked what you'd wish for if you only had one wish? Was it wisdom? Some of you are churchy enough. You knew where you were. You suspected what was coming. You said wisdom or Jesus because that's always the right answer in church. But the rest of you are probably feeling pretty guilty right now because you didn't think of a holy answer. You wanted a Ferrari instead. Just, I'm sorry for tricking you. But for real, there is sometimes deep value and stepping back and taking stock of our lives and asking ourselves the question, what is it that I desire? What do I spend the most of my time and energy on? What do I want most? About a decade ago, I was doing youth ministry up in the Twin Cities, and every year we'd plan this event called The Amazing Race. And it was basically a miniature version of the TV show. We'd get a whole bunch of students, take them into downtown Minneapolis, and have them spend a day racing each other around the entire Twin Cities in teams, doing challenges, trying to decipher clues. It was an amazing time. And quick revive plug right here. We are bringing The Amazing Race to Des Moines this July as part of the Revive Staycation Retreat. So if you're a student in middle school or high school and you haven't registered yet, you should get signed up right now. It's going to be amazing. All right? But as you can imagine, it takes a whole lot of planning to pull off an event like that. And I remember one of the first years I did it, I went downtown with my administrative assistant and some volunteer leaders. We parked in the garage attached to the hotel we were going to stay at for the event and spent a day kind of mapping out the whole race. And then it got to be about 3.30 and we decided to head for home because one of my leaders had to be back for a meeting and we wanted to beat rush hour traffic. We got back to the parking garage and couldn't remember what level we were on. We knew it was near the top, so no biggie. Hopped in the elevator, tried one, wrong. Tried another one, wrong again. Tried a third one, still no car. 
And at this point, I was starting to get a little bit weirded out and a little bit panicked because I promised everybody we'd be back by five. So I went down to level four and I hoofed it. I mean, this was a giant garage, but I was like, I, I got to get Sandy back for her meeting. Otherwise, I'm a liar. And I ran, you guys, around level four and then level five and then level six and then level seven. And then I, I sort of stumble walked along level eight until I hit the top of the garage and I did not find my car. And then I met up with the rest of the crew and everybody was a little confused as to why we couldn't find it. And I was dying because I am not a runner. I was just exhausted and grumpy. And then someone's like, what if you hit the emergency button on your keys? It's like, good thought. So I did. And the car started honking, which is an exhale moment because it hadn't been stolen. Not that it was a car worth stealing by any stretch of the imagination, but at some point, why is it gone? So we started to make our way toward the honking, and we still couldn't find my stupid car. We could hear it, but not see it. And I don't know if ever in my life I've been so hopeless and frustrated and confused, and it must have shown on my face because this guy came up and said, hey, do you need help finding your car? I'll drive you around to look for it. And so I let him know, I already ran around the whole garage, and it's not there, but we can hear it. And he started chuckling. He was the only one chuckling. The rest of us didn't find it very funny. But then he explained, this parking garage is actually two identical but unconnected ramps. It has the exact same name. There's just a south side and a north side. We're in the south ramp. If you take that elevator back down to the hotel lobby, make your way to the bank of elevators on the other side, and try the north ramp, I bet you'll find that car that you can hear. Sure enough, it worked, and we got to my car just in time to go four miles per hour through bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic in Minneapolis for the next hour. It was the best. But as I look back now on that experience, I wonder if it's not a fairly accurate picture of how a lot of us are living our lives. Bear with me. You have something you're looking for. You have something you're seeking, and you're running up some ramp trying to find it, hoping it's there. And maybe for you, it's like, oh, if I could just find somebody to get married to, I'd finally be fulfilled and happier. I'm so sick of being single. I'd settle for finding someone I might even think about marrying. Or maybe you're thinking, if I could make enough money to retire early, that'd be the thing for me. Or if I could just get that new house I saw on Zillow or that new car, if I could move to that new city with that new senior, if I could get that job, that promotion, if I could get that grade, if I could make that team, that would be the thing that finally turns everything around for me. Then life would be the way I want it to be and I'd finally be happy. But often what happens is you start running around this ramp the world has convinced you you got to run around and you get to the top and what you discover, much like Bono, is that you still haven't found what you're looking for. No, you still haven't found what you're looking for. I'm just trying to get that stuck in your head for Father's Day. You're welcome. But this happens, right? We're convinced that we're going to find it. We're convinced, like everyone's told us, this is where it's going to be. And then we discover that the thing we were after wasn't parked in the place we thought it would be parked. And we're empty and we're frustrated and we're feeling a little bit hopeless. And I got good news for you this morning. You're not alone. And that isn't a new problem. It's an ancient one. It's one Solomon talked about. The Bible tells us not only that God granted him wisdom, but that God made him the wisest man who ever lived. And so he's worth listening to in some of these areas. And so today, as we continue our wisdom, Smarter Decisions, Fewer Regrets series, 
we're going to take a look at what Solomon had to say about this human phenomenon of chasing the things our culture says will make us happy and coming up empty. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible handy, you can crack it open to the book of Proverbs chapter 27. If you don't have one, you can follow along with the words on the screen. And if you need one or your kids need one, we have them in a bunch of different colors for a bunch of different ages, along with a reading plan. Out at the Next Steps table in the lobby, there are gifts to you. We love it when they disappear, so please take whatever you need before you go today. But Proverbs 2720 this is what Solomon writes. Just like death and destruction are never satisfied, human desire is never satisfied. I don't, I don't know about you, but I read that one and I think, like, really, Solomon? Isn't that a little bit hyperbolic, never satisfied? Because I've been hungry before and desired food and then sat down in front of a Giordano's deep dish pizza, and I'm pretty sure when that thick layer of cheese and sauce and pepperoni hits my mouth, the feeling in my soul is satisfaction. I know I'm not alone. So what in the world does Solomon mean when he says human desire can never be satisfied? What's he talking about? This is what he wants us to understand. The deepest desires of your soul, the things you most desperately want or most desperately need filled, whether you even recognize it or not, purpose, value, belonging, love, those needs cannot be met by anything this world has to offer. And you will continue coming up empty if you continue chasing the world, no matter what society or social media try to tell you. That stuff simply cannot be found there. And if you listen to the world, you're going you're gonna to run up the relationship ramp. And wholeness, completeness, fullness, they're not going to be found there. You try the money ramp, it's not going to be found there. You'll run up the success ramp, the job ramp, the achievement ramp, and you will find nothing because you were created by a creator in a certain way. You were designed by a designer with a purpose. You were made by a maker in such a way that the only ramp that will ever fulfill the deepest longings and needs of your soul is the God ramp. It's a relationship with him. The great church father Augustine once said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. Our souls are never going to find the rest they need, the peace they're desperate for outside of a connection with the God who made us for himself no matter what culture tries to tell us, because the truth is nothing else can carry that load. The late great pastor Tim Keller put it this way, if you love anything in this world more than you love God. And notice he doesn't critique love here. It's not loving things or loving people that's the problem. We're built for love. It's loving them more. If you love anything in this world more than you love God, you will crush that object under the weight of your expectations. I think we all know what this is like building something up so huge in our brains that we are inevitably bummed out when it just doesn't live up. We do it with dates. Like, oh, this guy, he's going to be the one. He has to be the one. He's tall and rich. And also we have mutual friends and he seems nice and it's going to be perfect. And your friends are like, oh my God, just call me as soon as it's over. And then he spends the first 40 minutes talking about how sick he is at Call of Duty. I regularly snipe people from over 100 yards. Her. Like we do it with marriage. 
So many people walk into marriage convinced that their spouse is going to be the one who completes them and makes them happy all the time. And then they put an outrageous amount of pressure on someone else to make them feel good about themselves constantly until that person fails. And look at you and you're like, I can't do or be for you what apparently you're looking for me to do or be. So many people in our world do this with kids. I promise you, if you start living vicariously through your kids, they will crumble. Eventually, that relationship will end in rebellion or resentment because they aren't strong enough to carry the weight of your happiness. And it's not just relationships we do this with. We do it with all sorts of things, with jobs, with houses, with cars, with fill in the blank. If I just get that new thing, then finally it's going to be there. And then you finally grab hold of that thing and you're still empty. And you end up hating the thing you grabbed hold of because you thought it could be for you something it simply couldn't be. You thought it could fill a void in your life. It was never meant to fill. And all you're left with then is disappointment and usually a heaping helping of resentment to go along with it. You guys, no person, no thing, no relationship can meet the needs of your soul. Only God can do that. And when we lean on anything other than God, we end up backing ourselves into a corner. Solomon warns us in Proverbs eleven six: the righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the unfaithful are trapped by evil desires. The wisest man who ever lives is trying to tell us that our desires can trap us. When we start looking for fulfillment in the wrong places, those things we're seeking end up being the chains that bind us and the prison bars that hold us back from the beauty and the fullness of the lives God says we were created for. We can be ensnared by our own desires, which means in the name of getting some wisdom this morning that helps us make smarter decisions and live with fewer regrets, we got to understand a few things. And the first thing we got to understand is this, wise people refuse to accept their desires as they are. This is so important because it flies in the face of everything our society tells us. If you ask people in 21st century America how you should make decisions, most of them are going to say something along the lines of, well, you got to search inside yourself. Like, look inside and see what feels right and see what feels best to you and then follow your heart. You have to live your truth. You have to live your truth. And what we mean when we say your truth or live your truth is, is follow your feelings. Because as soon as it's your truth, we have left the philosophical realm of truth and we've entered the realm of subjective feelings. You got to live your truth. You got to follow your feelings. And even followers of Jesus find ourselves caught up in this. I talk to so many people that are like, yeah, well, we just have a lot of peace about this decision. Like in, in the places where I feel the most peace and comfort, that's how I know God must be leading me there. Because if you open up the Bible, God never calls anyone to something they don't have peace about. And he primarily concerns himself with our comfort. <laughs> it's hard though. It's really difficult. I do this all the time. It's so hard not to get caught up thinking like that because the whole flow of our culture is in that direction. But wise people don't think like that. Wise people understand that not every desire I have is a desire worth chasing, even though that's the siren song of our society. I mean, it's so ingrained in our culture that advertisers play on it, right? You see beer commercials with like super fit people running along laughing at a beach. What does that have to do with Michelob? Nothing, right? But they want us to believe if we drink enough Michelobes, we can have six-pack abs and beautiful friends who laugh at all our jokes. 
And who's to say that wouldn't happen, right? I, I don't know, I guess, maybe. I wasn't sure. So for your sake, this week, I texted a buddy of mine who's a nutritionist at Mayo Clinic, how many beers would the average American need to drink to get six-pack abs? And he texted me back, what? <laughs> so I explained the situation. I told him I saw a Michelob commercial where there were all these sexy people at a beach, and I want to let everyone know on Sunday how many Michelobes they would need to look like those people and have that kind of life. What do you think? And he texted back, I'd go with negative 500 just as a jumping off point, but tell everyone they got to give or take a few hundred depending on where they're starting from. <laughs> now we know. We knew already. They do too, the ad company that put together the Michelob commercial. And the worst part is they know, we know, but they don't care because they also know Solomon was right, our desires can entrap us. Corporations play to our feelings because they understand we're going to be guided by our feelings more often than we should. And so they lie to us. And we know they're lying to us. And it works anyway. Nine out of every 10 ads I see on Instagram, I click on. I'm just like, ooh, ooh. Uh, why? Because feelings are compelling even if they're not always accurate. Feelings are compelling even if they're not always reliable. Sometimes our feelings distort reality and invite us to chase what we want now at the cost of what we want most. And that's why wise people refuse to accept their desires as they are. They look out and they see that car they can't afford. They see that house that's above the price range they were going to spend, but it has a fire pit and the perfect countertops. They see that job that relationship that promises it will be the thing that turns it all around and they see right through the facade. They have an Admiral Akbar moment. They go, it's a trap. It's a trap because they know our desires can entrap us, which means for all of us here this morning, it's important to be honest with ourselves about what we desire, to take a step back every once in a while and answer that question I asked at the beginning, if I could wish for one thing, what would I wish for? Because when we're conscious of what our desires are, we're able not to accept them as they are. We're able to decide, look, just because I want it right now doesn't mean I got to chase it right now. And after we get to that point, we can do the next thing. We can take the next step that wise people take. And here it is. Wise people reorder their desires as they should be. Wise people refuse to accept their desires as they are and then reorder their desires as they ought to be. Real quick example of what I'm talking about. I desire very deeply to be a great dad who's attentive and present with my kids when I'm there in the evenings. I also desire very greatly to see the Cubs box score on the ESPN app on my phone. There's nothing wrong with either of those desires. But sometimes after a really long day of work when I'm sitting on a couch and my twins are in front of me, I desire them in the wrong order, and they're mutually exclusive in that order, and so I have to reorder my good desires in order to get what I really want most. And so here's what wise people do. Wise people fight to make sure that God is on the throne of their lives. They reorder their desires so what they want most is God. And then daily, regularly, hourly, they make sure that nothing else is edging God out of that top spot. I'll quote Augustine again. He said, the root of all sin is misordered affection. It's not affection or desires in and of themselves. Those things are good 
and beautiful and human. It's just that we sin when we get it twisted and we want something more than we want God. Something more than we want the story he says he's writing in our lives. Or when we expect that something can fulfill a desire in us, only God was made to fill. We sin when our affections get misordered. It's not so much about loving the wrong things, it's about loving the right things the wrong way, in the wrong order and the wrong amounts. And there are a number of ways in which that happens, but I want to point out three this morning that I think are particularly dangerous. Three different desires that spring up and live in our souls as human beings that threaten constantly to kick God off the throne of our lives. The first one is approval. It's approval. Proverbs 29, 25 says, fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. I think it's so easy to get to a spot where we are obsessed with what other people think of us, and that's the quickest way to forget about what God thinks of us. This is a struggle for me, though. Chances are that you might be putting too much pressure and too much emphasis on approval if you're constantly crushed by criticism. It's hard not to be, though, if you're worried that anyone else might be disappointed in you. We know, if at work or school, nine people tell you you nailed it and one person says you stink, it wrecks your day. Positive words are hard to remember. Negative words are hard to forget. You also might be placing too much importance on approval if you're willing to compromise frequently, if you're willing to just lie a little, sell your values down the river, a little. Cheat a little. Go a little further than you wanted to go in your relationship because you don't want to upset the person who asked you to. Or maybe your struggle with approval plays itself out as an inability to say no to anybody ever. This one's mine. I would rather burn myself out and run myself ragged than live with the fear in the back of my head that maybe somebody was a little bit disappointed in me. Like whatever it is, it's easy to ruin our lives chasing the approval of people because we've come to the belief that they are big and God is small. But we can find a whole lot of life and meaning and purpose in living for his approval and his approval alone. Second area that tends to push God out of that number one spot in our lives is pleasure. And pleasure is not a bad thing in and of itself. I think sometimes the church gets really weird about this and we act like you have to, you know, be boring and somber if you're going to follow Jesus. And that's not true at all. Jesus promised that we were created to live abundantly. I mean, he came up with all the good stuff. You guys, God created sex and sleep. God invented bacon. You will never convince me while I'm sitting in front of a plate of bacon that God does not love us. All right? It's not happening. And yet, Solomon warns in Proverbs 21, 17, whoever loves pleasure will become poor. And what he's saying is that if we love pleasure more than anything else, if that becomes the number one thing in our lives, if that becomes our God, eventually we're going to end up in poverty, not just material poverty, but relational and spiritual poverty. Because the thing about pleasure is there's never enough for you. And so ultimately, it turns you inward at the cost of your relationships with other people and the cost of your relationship with God because there's always more. There, there's more stuff and more money and more happiness and more rest and more comfort. And you just make it all about 
you to the point that you are completely impoverished in every area that actually matters. But it happens. We allow pleasure to, to do that to us, and we allow pleasure to lead us to sin because there's always more of it. It'll never be satiated, and it's kind of fun. Sin is fun. I bet you didn't expect to hear that in church today. You have to call your dad later and say, happy fathers. What the pastor talk about? He said, sin is fun. I don't think you should go to that church anymore. It's fair, but it is, right? Nobody sins because they think it's going to be a bad time. They usually sin because it seems like it'll be fun, and not sinning seems like it would be a bad time. Even the Bible admits this. In Hebrews 11, it's walking through all these heroes of the faith. It gets to verse 25 and says, Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. There's pleasure to it. It's just fleeting. And to make sure all of us have a very clear understanding of what this looks like, I, uh, I have with me on stage today a chalupa from Taco Bell. I love Taco Bell. Chalupas, cheesy gordita crunches, nacho fries. They're so delicious. But 20 minutes after you eat Taco Bell, whom I can, two minutes after you eat Taco Bell, you can't help but get to the point where you're like, I don't know if this is the best choice. I shouldn't have eaten the whole $5 cravings box in under five minutes, but it went down so easy. You eat Taco Bell for dinner, you don't wake up the next morning happy about that decision. Sin is like this chalupa. Sometimes you just want it. Your eyes see it and your soul cries out, yo quiero Taco Bell. And it makes you happy for a minute. And then it makes you so sad. The pain always outweighs the pleasure in the end. And look, I don't know what it is for you exactly. What sort of pleasure you're chasing that's crowding out God in your life, whether it's money, whether it's success, whether it's images on a computer screen, whether it's the media you're consuming, whether it's continually buying stuff you don't need with money you don't have to impress people you don't like, whether it's the social media likes you're addicted to, like whatever it is for you, even though it feels like it might fill you up, there is no escaping the fact that it's a road which ultimately leads to destruction. And the third thing this morning that tends to push God out of his rightful place in our lives is control. Some of us hate it when we are not in complete control of every situation. As soon as we feel it slipping out of our grasp, as soon as we end up in a spot where we can't bend things to our will, we lose our minds. We get angry and anxious. If one area of control is slipping, we try to control all the other things that we can control. We manipulate people. We offer or withhold rewards for their compliance. We yell at them. We take things into our own hands. In fairness, that's what the Bible says to do. A lot of us, when we were little, memorized Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Unless the Lord's doing things wrong, then take it into your own hands, right? We all know that it's in the Bible. So we're like, what translation is that? That's the MALV, the Modern American Living Version. A better translation is trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Because people who love controlling hate submitting. Before you elbow your husband or your wife real quick, before you look to the right or the left, look in a mirror, that's you. 
That's every last one of us in some areas, in some spaces of our lives. We love controlling so much that we hate submitting to anyone or anything, to bosses, to spouses, to God. But here's the reality of our world. Until you can humble yourself to the point where you come to the realization that God is God and you are not, and then you submit your life to him. Until you do that, until you refuse to accept your desires as they are and allow God to reorder them as they ought to be, you will keep running up a whole bunch of different ramps looking for something you'll never find. Because none of what you're looking for is parked in the places the world is telling you it's parked. And so I just want to invite us this morning to surrender. I want to invite all of us to, to come before God with open hands and say, God, I've been running up all these ramps, convinced that I was going to find the thing my soul really needs, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I am exhausted and empty, so would you help me not accept my desires as they are? Would you help me reorder them so that you are at the forefront because I know that's the thing that will lead me toward the hope and the beauty and the life and the story you're trying to write for me. Because I say this as a struggler along the journey. I think too many of us have been looking for fulfillment in all the wrong places and finding far too little of it. We've been running up all the wrong ramps and what we're really searching for isn't parked there, which is why we still haven't found what we're looking for. And it's only when we come before God and surrender, only when we trust that he can be for us everything we need in every moment that we'll begin to grab hold of the futures for which he created us. And not only that, but we'll also begin to be a part of the future he wants to create in and through us for our world as we find the beauty and the happiness and the meaning he dreamed us up, knit us together and breathed life into our nostrils to experience. And I want that for us. I want that for us. We were made for God, you guys, and our souls will be restless until they find their rest in him. We pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for making us for yourself. Lord, we confess this morning, every last one of us, that we are tempted to chase approval and tempted to chase control and tempted to chase pleasure in ways that, that knock you out of that top spot. We confess that all of us have run up a whole lot of ramps and not found the thing we were looking for. And I just pray this morning that you would help us not accept our desires as they are. Help us decide that just because we want it doesn't mean we got to chase it. Help us reorder our desires so that you're at the center and fight for that so that we can step into the stories you're trying to write in our lives and through our lives for our world. God, may we be a people who are so filled by your presence, so filled by your love, so filled by your glory and your grace that not only are we living better, more beautiful lives, but we're able to walk out into the darkness that surrounds us and point them Point the people who are hurting that we crash into every day toward the light that can be found in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.